Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. William Cooper uh, has a poem that I love. It's a pretty lengthy one called Truth. And in that poem, he says, Man, so all of us, on the dubious waves of error tossed, his ship half foundered and his compass lost, sees as far as human optics may command, sees fog, sails into it, thinking it's dry land. And what he learns in that poem is that that fog that he sails into with his life, with his compass lost and his ship half foundered, is nothing but a fog. Nothing but a fog. And he ends his life in meaninglessness because he never had truth. What I'm going to talk with you guys about today is affliction. Uh, We come to a portion of scripture where the psalmist is saying things like, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And a lot of sermons that focus on affliction and suffering and and pain attempt to to bring upon its ears a, a weightiness of suffering and affliction and pain. And that's kind of easy to do because we all know how weighty that is. We all know how weighty suffering and affliction is. And so I can stand up here and talk with you about that and it will resonate with you. The way that I want to go this morning, and we we will talk about affliction and the weightiness of suffering, but, but the note that I want to resound in your hearts and in your minds throughout this next week is the weightiness of the glory of God ministered to you through his word in your affliction and in your suffering. Because it's that truth that enables you to sail into those times of suffering and affliction and have light speaking in that darkness. And so that's where I want us to go today. Uh, We're going to take kind of the long way around the mountain for that, Uh, so bear with me as I kind of set the stage for where that's all going to enter in. Um, I want to start off just by saying that humans have set goals in their lives, which could be termed their philosophy of, of, of the world or their philosophy of life since time out of mind. The Stoics, ancient Greeks, Philosophers had a word that encapsulated their philosophy of the world. It was logos. Logos. This logos was to the Stoics the divine principle that uh, was behind the order of the world that they could perceive through their reason. It's the word that was behind the world that they observed. Uh, Logos is the word from which we derive our word logic. 
orderliness. This belief in the logos is what led a philosopher like Cicero to argue adamantly against Epicurus, uh, which we all remember from our intro to philosophy class. Uh, Epicurus, yeah, Epicurus thought the world was not a cosmos, that it wasn't orderly, um, but that it was rather chaos. Uh, in response to him, Cicero writes this. He says, let him mock as much as he likes. Epicurus. Yeah. It, remi- it remains no less true that nothing is more perfect than this world, which is an animate being endowed with awareness, intelligence, and reason. So the Logos to the Stoics was the blueprint behind the working order that they observed. The word behind the world, which conformed the world into a reasonable cosmos that we could perceive. This divine principle of the Logos was applied not only to the way that they saw the world, but to the way that they saw their lives as well. They sought to live in an orderly and virtuous way as they sought to live in alignment with the Logos, to have a well-ordered life. Their goal was a life of living in step with that word behind the world that they could perceive through reason. What they sought after was a meaning in this world, a meaning in this world in order and a means of relating their existence to what surrounded them. The Stoics found their meaning in the Logos and the means of relating their existence to it was reason. That's one way to live. And one way to find meaning, that's one philosophy of life. There's many things that we could give uh, our lives to, various goals we could aim at, many things that could consume our thoughts, time, and resources, some plainly more virtuous and more meaningful than others. The question for all of us this morning is this. Is what we live for and have made the goal of our lives going to make any sense in our suffering? or make sense of our suffering, or rescue us from it? Will what we live for make sense in times of chaos? When things don't look like they add up, when things look crooked in this life, and that nothing's in control. Will what we live for make sense in that chaos? I fall in the middle of the Cicero and Epicurus debate, as I think most Christians would. We live in a world of order and chaos. Every Christian believes this because the Bible is the story of a cosmos that had the chaos of sin enter into it. And so we experience echoes of both chaos and order all the way back to Eden up to 2018. One thing is certain, every single one of us in this room will suffer. Every single one of us will experience a moment of chaos, a prolonged time of chaos. And the goal of our life, the means through which we find meaning and purpose, is going to be tested in that affliction. So we're believers. What's our goal? Our goal as believers is to treasure God's word by living in light of it. As Christians, we don't make the foundation of our discerning the logos and order of the world our reason, though reason does play a vital role. We rather believe the foundation to be revelation, which has been given. 
Christians believe that the God behind the order of the world has spoken and revealed the order which we are to live into. Therefore, our goal as believers is to treasure God's word by living in light of it. As believers, we go to God's word for many things, but not the least of which is to be changed. To be changed. We want to be more like Christ. As Scott said, we want to better bear the image of the one who created us, died for us, was raised again to give us hope that goes beyond the grave. We want to live for him. We go to the word because we want our lives to be ordered in such a way as to bear witness to him, to his goodness, and to his glory. Jesus Christ himself asked God the Father for this very thing in the Gospel of John chapter 17. He asks in verse 17 of that chapter for the Father to sanctify them, his disciples, his followers, in the truth. And he says, your word, O Lord, is truth. You see, Jesus' desire is for us to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be changed from one degree of glory to another, having the image of himself chiseled into us day by day as we come to him before his word as lumps of clay to be reshaped according to his truth, to be reordered according to his word and the likeness of his image. This is why Paul in Colossians 3.10 tells us that our new self in Christ is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. True knowledge of God's word brings renewal. And it's a renewal according to the image of God. So a question for us as believers this morning is this. How much do we value the renewal God's word affords? How much do you in your life treasure being ordered in such a way as to bear witness to the one who created you, lived for you, died for you, and rose again for you? How much do you value living in light of him so that his glory and goodness might shine through you? The answer to that question is going to determine how much you treasure God's word and what you're willing to endure to have more of it having its way in you. Put another way, if we don't value the renewal God's word produces in us, then we won't treasure God's word and we certainly won't endure much to have, it, have the change it provides. Positively, if we do value the renewal God's word produces in us, then we will treasure God's word and we will endure much to display it as our treasure as we seek to live in light of it, which is the goal of every follower of Christ. What's clear in our text this morning is that the psalmist treasures God's word. The psalmist treasures God's word. We come this morning to a portion of a psalm that we find just shy of being halfway through. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And what has already been made clear up to the start of our text this morning is that the psalmist greatly treasures God's word and the renewal it provides. Already, he has said things like, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And my favorite, your statutes have been my songs 
in the house of my sojourning. And in our text this morning, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The word of God to the psalmist is central and fundamental. Central and fundamental. He says it is better. Better than what? Well, thousands of gold and silver pieces. That's what the verse says. But what he's conveying in that statement, as starkly as he can, is that there is absolutely nothing better than the word from the mouth of his God. He's chosen what most in this world would esteem as the best thing that could ever happen to them. A financial status that would grant them the free and unmitigated pursuit of whatever it is that they value most. Thousands of gold and silver pieces. And he says the value of that pales in comparison to the worth of the word of his God. You see, people love money because it gets them what they really want. People don't love money for money's sake. They love money for what money can get them. Money is the mediator between the world and its gods. Houses, cars, status, sex, power. The psalmist here is saying the mediator between me and my God is his word. So I value that over the most obscene amount of money that you could ever put in front of me. Money is not the mediator between the psalmist and his God. God's word is. And you see what's happened there in that one verse, that fundamental foundational verse at the bottom of our text. The psalmist has thus freed himself in one verse from the gods of this world. Because his God can't be bought. And those are the only gods that this world affords you. And we'll see that he's also freed himself of the God of comfort. That's the kind of guy that we're coming into contact with this morning. That's where the psalmist is at. He treasures God's word. And it is this treasuring of God's word, as I said, that sets the foundation and trajectory of our portion of scripture. Nay, the very trajectory and foundation of the life of the psalmist. And your question might be similar to mine after reading things like we've already read this morning. How do I get there? How do I treasure God's word like that? How might I so value God's word that things like your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning and the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's better than everything. How is it that those might be true and present realities in my heart and the words upon my tongue? We're left asking, why does the psalmist treasure God's word? Well, I think it has everything to do with the goal of his life and his esteeming true joy as being wrapped up in his living in step with that goal. You see, everyone everywhere has an idea of what a good life is, whether it's formalized like the Stoics or not. 
We all want to be happy, and whatever we are consumed with in our lives, whatever the goal of our lives is, it's going to be determined by what we think is going to make us most happy. Blaise Pascal, 17th century French mathematician, inventor of the calculator. There's your take-home little trivia piece for the day. Um, He says this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end, happiness. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding war is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They want their happiness. He says the will of a man never takes the least step but to this object, happiness. He says it's the motive of every action of every man. For the psalmist, the goal of life and the joy of life is to live in alignment, not with some impersonal, perceived, divine principle behind the world. God's good and revealed designs. That's what the psalmist sees as the trajectory of his life. He sees that goal, living in alignment with God's divinely revealed words. That's where happiness is. That's where joy is found. He's a good Israelite. So why does the psalmist treasure the word of God? Because the very value of his life is caught up in his being conformed to the desires of his maker. This is where true joy, meaning, purpose, and value for him is found. The word of God made alive in him is true life. That's true life. That's why he treasures God's word. It reveals the order his life can stand on as true and joyful. And it's not just that obedience to God's will is true life for him. It's that disobedience is destruction. He knows well what chaos was brought into the world through the sin of the garden. And he knows the consequences of living out of step with God's order. Death and destruction. The psalmist doesn't want to come to the end of his life only to realize that he's been rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic, giving himself to things that in the end don't really matter and are going to sink. He believes in a God that has set objective standards for what a good and joyful life is, and his life is good, and he is happy inasmuch as he lives according to God's order. This is why he can't put a price tag on God's word, because it's the very source of his very life. As I said, treasuring This treasuring of God's word coming alive in him is what sets the foundation and trajectory of Psalm 119, 65 through 72. The whole section sits on and is stabilized by that final verse. It's the realities of verse 72 that cause him to begin our section of scripture with this affirmation to God in verse 65, where he says, you have dealt well with your servant. You have, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. He's saying, you've done good to me, God. You have done good to me, O Lord, according to your word, according to your promises and according to your designs. You have done good to me. 
And knowing what kind of person this psalmist is, we should expect that the good God has done in this context has something to do with conforming the psalmist's life further to his word. In verse 17 of Psalm 119, as we've already read, the psalmist asked God to deal bountifully with him. And he defined God dealing bountifully with him as God dealing with him in such a way that he would live and keep God's word. That's what God dealing bountifully with the psalmist is defined as. If, if God's going to deal bountifully with me, if he's going to deal bountifully with you, how do you define that? Scripture in the psalmist defines it as, well, it's God giving, giving me what I need to live in conformity to his good commands and good designs. He repeats this in verse 66 of our section of Scripture. There he pleads, teach me, teach me, God, good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. What he's saying is, is give me more of a true life. I, I believe your way is true. I believe your commandments. Help me, O oh God, to live in alignment with them. Help me to not just believe in your word. Help me to see it and be changed by it. Help me to see it and actually live in light of it. Deal bountifully with me that I may live and keep your word. And what the psalmist comes to learn is that the granting of that plea can be, can be costly, but it's worth it. True life can be costly, but it's good and worth it. God's dealing bountifully with us sounds like we're going to get much from him. He's dealing bountifully with us, and we do. As we've seen, the psalmist is asking for nothing less than a life of order, a true life, a life of meaning, the greatest treasure anyone could ever have. The costly nature of that bountiful gift comes when it destroys all the lesser treasures that we may have stored up in a life according to our order and our designs. What may be most jarring in our text this morning for us as Orange County Americans is the means through which God brings about the answer to the psalmist's plea for good judgment and knowledge because it challenges the idol of comfort. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Remember, this is in the context of you've dealt well with me. You've done good to me. And in answer to teach me good judgment and knowledge. God has done the good the psalmist asked for. But at a cost, the psalmist may not have foreseen or desired. Affliction. Why would God utilize the means of affliction to bring about the good of the psalmist keeping his word? It's because there's a divide in the psalmist's life, and it's one that we've all experienced. The divide between what we believe in and what we do. 
The psalmist believed in God's commands, but he still lacked proper application of those commands in various areas of his life. This he knew was keeping him from his utmost joy, a true and more ordered life. This is the guy who says God's rules and statutes are his songs in the house of his sojourning. He doesn't want to live out of step with those rules. He longs for those rules to be manifest in him. And so he asked God to remedy it in him. This is why he asked God for good judgment and knowledge in light of his belief in God's commands. And God utilized affliction in the psalmist's life because keeping his word is true life and God's disrupting the comfort of a wayward life is well worth the benefit of bringing it into alignment with his will. See, the problem for us as fallen and fallible creatures is that while we may affirm the word of God to be true, even though we may believe along with the psalmist in his commandments, we still fail to live in light of them. We often do. And at this point, God may use a bitter providence, a difficult good, to bring out of us the good that we desire and that he's after in us. As many of you know, I was diagnosed with colon cancer in May. If you had asked me prior to that diagnosis, if I desired to love life and see many good days, if, if you said, hey, is that, is that your thing? I would have said, yeah, I, I would like to live life, uh, love life and, and see many good days. Would have said definitely yes on that one. What I wouldn't have known, though, was that the way I was living prior to my diagnosis was compromising that good desire. It took the divine tap of cancer to reveal that my desire to live a, a, a long life and see many good days, it took cancer to reveal that what I was doing with my life at that time was out of step with that good desire. Cancer's changed my life for the better. I don't live the way I used to. I don't eat the way that I used to. I don't think the way that I used to. I definitely don't eat the way I used to. That's probably the biggest one. Um, cancer has been a bitter providence in my life. A difficult good. Difficult because it hurts. Surgery hurts. Cancer and the thoughts that go along with it hurt. Good, because the pain has produced in me qualities that are more in alignment with my desire to love life and see many good days. Whatever the affliction was that the psalmist went through or was going through, and it most certainly has something to do with what's mentioned in verse 69, that the insolent had been smearing him with lies. Whatever it was, it was used by God to open the psalmist's eyes to his waywardness and to bring him into further renewal and delight according to his word, which is the best thing that God could have ever done and the best that the psalmist could have ever hoped for. It is the treasuring of God's word, though. It is the treasuring of God's word made alive in the psalmist that leads the psalmist after this affliction to then declare to God in verse 68, you are good 
and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. How interesting that the experience that causes most to doubt God's goodness is what drives the psalmist to declare God's goodness. Affliction, pain, suffering. Of course, this had everything to do with what God did through his suffering and what the psalmist saw God doing in his suffering and affliction. The psalmist doesn't so much declare God good for afflicting me, like, thanks God for punching me in the face, um, so much as he declares God good for wielding affliction for the greatest good in his life. Praising God's goodness for using something chaotic and painful to bring about something beautiful and good in him. God is good because although our sin caused the chaos in his good order, when we turned our backs on his good desires and good designs and attempted to form our own realities according to our own desires and our own designs, although our sin caused the divine, the divide between our beliefs and our actions, although it caused the pain to enter into God's paradise, the good God overall nevertheless wields that chaos to conform us further back into his original and good order. And as we'll see, he brings about something even more beautiful in Christ. And so in verse 71, in light of that, the psalmist is led to this remarkable statement. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted. In the following section of Psalm 119, he goes so far as to say in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. This should cause us to ask ourselves, do I treasure God's word like that? Do I value the change that God's word could afford me to that degree? Do I treasure God's word enough to desire more of it to be made alive in me, no matter the cost, no matter the affliction? God, have your way. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 did. He treasured God's word to the extent that he was freed from the gods of this world, including comfort, and was radically enabled by that treasuring to embrace affliction, great discomfort, as a good. So long as it got him more of his God and more of his God into him. Do we treasure God's word enough to embrace affliction as a good and faithful act of God if it gets more of his word to come alive in us. I know this is hard. I don't preach what I'm preaching today to make light of affliction, pain, and suffering. The weight of that is, is, is real, and I don't need to convince you of it. 
the psalmist didn't write what he did to make light of his suffering. His suffering was enough for him to cry out to God. What I'm preaching today and what the psalmist wrote is intended not to make light of suffering, but to make weightier God's glory in the minds of men for the sake of living in step with his designs so that true life might shine in the darkness of your affliction and your chaos. Darkness, affliction, and chaos will come into all of our lives. The question is, will there be an order and a light in the midst of it? I hate that I've had to entertain thoughts of my one-and-a-half-year-old little boy and his soon-to-be-born sibling growing up without me. I hate that I've had to entertain those thoughts. I hate that I've had to entertain thoughts of my wife being dismayed over the loss of a husband at such a young age with so much potential life to live. But God's word calls me to love it, having its way in me, more than I hate those potential realities. More than that, I'm called to believe the promise of God that if I am seeking after him, not one thing in my life, not one rogue cell in my life comes to me, but through his hands and his wisdom. Wisdom that would weave my woes into a song of goodness. I'm called to believe that God will deal bountifully with me and that even the woe of cancer with a growing young family could be a good gift in light of what he can do with it. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And as Scott read this morning, God works all things together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. At times, we might not know, exactly as the psalmist did, what our afflictions were intended to produce in us. We might not get answers to our suffering like that. We might not see the waywardness made right. Some of us might only be given the gift of groaning. The gift of pain that makes us long for the world to come and makes us realize that this world isn't it and that this isn't our home. Pain 
that would make us set our minds on things above and not on things below. Pain that would have us seek a homeland where affliction will be no more and sin's chaos is finally and fully remedied. And that will happen. Because there exists one who at his death, his affliction, declared it as good as finished. Jesus, the afflicted word of God. Whereas the Greek used reason to discern the Logos and the Israelite believed in the revelatory word of God's law, the Christian looks to Christ, who the Apostle John describes as the embodied Logos in the first chapter of his gospel. John tells us that the very word of God, the word behind the world, which is God, was made manifest in the human Jesus of Nazareth. He says this in chapter 1 of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. It's the Greek word logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, the logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke Ferry, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, describes this drastic shift in viewing the order of the world, what the Greeks called logos, as an impersonal force to viewing it as an embodied person, Jesus Christ. He says it like this, the Logos, which, was, which as we have seen for the Stoics, merged with the impersonal, harmonious and divine structure of the cosmos as a whole, came to be identified for Christians with a single and unique personality, that of Christ. Believers maintained that the Logos, in other words, the divine principle, was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the world, but was incarnated in one outstanding individual, namely Christ. The divine had shifted ground. It was no longer an impersonal structure, but an extraordinary individual in the form of Jesus, the God-man. So where are you looking for the order in your life? What is the goal of your life? What have you esteemed as being the path to your greatest happiness? As Christians, we look to Christ for the order of our lives. We seek to live in alignment with Him and His model We treasure Christ, the Word made flesh. We treasure Christ, the Word that was afflicted. More than merely being an external principle or model that we live in light of, Christ, the Word, is our substitute who bridges the divide of our failure to live in light of Him by way of His affliction, His death, and His resurrection. Jesus, the embodied Logos, was afflicted on the cross to bring us into that alignment that we so desire, into union and unison with himself. 
The logos is not just something to possess anymore, not just something out here that I look at and I attempt to live in light of. It's someone to be possessed by. The logos, the goal of your life, is someone to be possessed by. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus came not just to be a model. Not just to be a model. No one could live up to his standard. He came to be a savior. He changes us on the inside so that we can slowly but surely be made over into his image. He does not just tell us how to live. He gives us the power to live that way. The paradox is that only if we see him as substitute rather than model can we actually have the ability to live according to his model. Thanks to Jesus, our affliction is only for a time. A passing thing that will one day give way to the weight of a greater glory. And thanks to Jesus, we can be assured that our affliction that in our affliction, that he can bring true life out of it. He can, be, he can bring true life and light out of your darkness, chaos, and death. Because that's exactly what he did in his affliction when he died and rose for our hope. In light of this, may we live radically as we treasure the word of God. As we treasure the word of God, Jesus Christ, and his revelation, embracing whatever may come in our lives as at bottom being a faithful act of a good God in accordance with his promises. All of our afflictions in this life as Christians come with an asterisk attached to them. Because though they appear on the surface to be chaos, God is wielding them for our good and his glory. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.